0: Well, as you were just singing and saying that word Hosanna, whether you knew it or not, you were speaking both Greek and Hebrew. You see, the word Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means, um, that means a, a cry for help. It literally means save. And if you look at the Hebrew word of the Hebrew text of Psalm 118.25, there it says, Ana Yahweh Hoshiana. And if you were to translate that literally word for word, it says, O Yahweh save now. It was a desperate cry. It was a desperate prayer. So strong was this prayer that people would pray is that the word for save is in the imperative form, which means it's a command. If you were to translate that text with the full force of the way that it's written, you would put an exclamation point after each word. You would say, oh Lord, save now. As these people were standing there on the mountain, as they were there uh, watching Jesus come in, and as they were saying these words, they were asking God, they were praying, let this be the Savior, and he was. You hear the name Jesus Christ, and the name Jesus, the Hebrew word for that is Yeshua. It literally means Savior. And we say Christ, it's the Greek word Christos. It means the Messiah. So this is the Savior Messiah that God sent, the Son of God who was coming into Jerusalem that day to ultimately go to a cross, to die on that cross to pay the penalty of death for the sins that you and I have committed, the people in that day have committed. And it was through his blood that would be shed that our sins would be washed away. And that's why today as we sing this word, Hosanna, it's not a prayer anymore, it's a praise song. We're saying, God, you saved us. We know that we've been saved through what you did for us, Jesus. So I invite you to turn with me now in your Bible to John chapter 12, Uh, John 12.12 is where we're beginning today as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry as he comes into Jerusalem. It says, On the next day the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed these signs. The Pharisees, therefore, said to one another, You see? You are doing no good. You are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, as we're reading this, this is just one of four accounts. All of the Gospels record the triumphal entry of Jesus, what we call Palm Sunday, and are celebrating today. And as John describes this event, you see that it's, it's, it's happening in a chronological sequence because John 12, 12 begins with the words, On the next day... And so what I want to do is I want to take you back before this moment, before the excitement of the crowds, and look at some of the events that are leading up to this so that we have a better perspective of the people in the crowd that day on the Mount of Olives, what their expectations were as Jesus was coming in. One of the key elements is mentioned there in verse 17, because we're told, and so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. There are people in the crowd who were there uh, as Jesus brought Lazarus out of the dead. And if you turn back just one page in your Bible, uh, you see that event taking place. Because in John eleven thirty nine through 45, uh, Jesus is there at the tomb. And he said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, went to him and said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. For he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that thou hearest me. And I know that thou hearest me always, because, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that thou descend me. Jesus could have just said, arise. And it would have happened. But because people are around, he wants them to understand his relationship as the son of God to the father in heaven. And how this is taking place. And so he prays out loud. And he says, and when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped about with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many therefore of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. You'll remember that as we talked about at the end of our series in Luke with the resurrection of Jesus, as they came to the tomb, they saw the grave clothes there. And I told you how they would have been a cocoon, this this wrapping with the spices that, that, you know, was this tight cocoon. And as the body was gone, the wrappings were there. And here you see it with Lazarus. He doesn't throw off a sheet and come walking out. He's, He's bound up and they have to go in and release him from these grave clothes, and as they see this man who's been dead for four days alive, it's as many of them say, he is the Messiah. This is God's promised one. He can bring people back even from the dead. And so this amazing miracle takes place, and people are pumped. There are many coming to faith. There are people following Jesus. But we see that not everybody there is excited about it because John eleven forty six 46-48 says, But some of them went to the Pharisees, and they told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In verses 53 through 57, it goes on to say, So from that day on they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And therefore they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another, as they they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will come to the feast at all? And so the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So remember that there's this this amazing miracle that's just happened. And you would think that Jesus would ride that crescendo as he comes into the city, but instead Jesus drops off the radar. We, We saw in verse 53 where it said, Therefore he no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to the country near the wilderness. So Jesus disappears, and all around uh, the country suddenly wanted posters start popping up as the religious leaders are, are saying, if you see Jesus, tell us we want to arrest him. And so this is why the people are discussing there, what do you think? Is he going to come? Is he going to be here at the feast? And everybody's going, well, I don't know. You know, he's wanted, and they're going to arrest him. And so there's this, this big discussion, and they're saying, well, surely he's not going to come. But Jesus did come because we just read in John 12 that he was coming. But before he gets there, he's traveling around off the radar in, in a roundabout way in the back off the beaten path. Because uh, if you look at Luke's account of what's happening, he tells us in Luke 17:11 through 13. And it came about that while he was on the way to Jerusalem, that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now you'll remember that Samaria was, uh, is where the Samaritans are from. Now Samaritans, as we've talked about in past sermons, were, were seen as the hated half-breeds of the day. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And they had intermarried during the captivity, so the Jews shunned them. and and thus they shunned Samaria. They didn't want to go there because that was seen as polluted territory. They didn't want to be around the Samaritans. And we see that there were other people within Samaria that were even shunned by the Samaritans because there's this group of these 10 leprous men. And you know, everybody stayed away from them. And as Jesus is there, he encounters this group who are standing at a distance crying out, God, have mercy on us. Will you heal us? And Jesus does. Another amazing miracle happens. And then what the, the scriptures tell us is Jesus continues to Jerusalem, traveling and teaching along the way. And at times, he pulls the disciples aside for a sidebar. And, and that's what we see in Luke eighteen thirty one through 34, where it says, And he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophet about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now, there are plenty of times that we see in the Bible where, through parables, Jesus tells truth and stories in riddles. And they're kind of going, what does this mean? But, but here Jesus just lays it on the line. Cookies are on the bottom shelf. He plainly says to them, I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to be killed. And it says they didn't understand it. What did they not understand? You know, I think what's happening is these guys are sitting there and they're saying, what? No, why? Come on, Jesus. This isn't the story we want to hear. They're, they're saying, we've been with you for three years, Jesus. We've seen the tough times. We've seen the adversity. We've seen the adversaries come against you. There have been struggles along the way. But, but things are looking bright right now, Jesus. Look around. The crowds are growing. These amazing miracles are happening. Uh, this, and, and we're going to Jerusalem, the capital. This is where we get the crown, right? Jesus, the crown. And, and Jesus tells them, no, I'm going there to die. As you look at Mark's account, he tells us the same thing is said to the disciples. Just as plain as day, Jesus tells him, I'm going there in Mark 10, through 34 to, to be crucified. And the response in the very next verse is, it says that James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him. Saying to him, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. And as the other ten disciples hear this, you'd expect them to come to, to these two and go, how, how callous are you guys? How cold can you be? Jesus just said he's going to die this horrible death. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. And, and you should be giving him a hug. And instead, you're, you're coming in trying to hog the best seats. You're saying, you know, we want the, the place of glory. You know, what, what Mark 10.41 tells us is, it says, the, in hearing this, the ten begin to feel indignation with James and John. They're mad. And what they're mad about is that these guys called shotgun first. They're saying, hey, we were thinking about the good seats too. We're just mad that you guys grabbed them first. And as Jesus is watching these guys fighting, about the crown. He says, hey, 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 there is a crown in Jerusalem. But it's a crown of thorns. I'm going to die there. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. And these guys start shaking their heads and they go, no, 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 Jesus. You're reading the wrong script. You see, Jesus, look at, look at the crowds. People are coming. They're following this, this is the wave we're riding into town. This, this is the time where, where everything that we've hoped for is about to happen. It, it wasn't just crowds and people like lepers that were coming. As you look in Mark chapter 10, right before all of this is taking pay, place, Mark ten seventeen through 23 tells us there's a rich ruler who comes literally running up. He falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And these, these guys are watching this and they start, you know, kind of elbowing each other going, hey, look, you know who that is? That's Bill Gates. Look at that guy. He's rich. He's powerful. Man, this is it. Even the leaders are coming. And, and, and they're saying, you know, for three years we've been following Jesus and it's been lean times, but now the kingdom is coming and we're in the inner circle. We, we're part of the startup. We have the stock shares that are about to go public, and man, it is payday. And they're fist bumping each other behind the scenes. Now before we fault these guys, I want you to look at your own life for a minute and ask yourself, have you ever, ever had thoughts like this? You know, where you say, look, Jesus, I came to you. I gave my life to you. I said I'd follow you, and I have. And, and God, there's been some tough times. It's cost me. I've, I've had relationships that have broken apart. I've, I've had uh, places on a team or in a peer group that I was shunned from because I was a strong believer. I had a promotion at work or at the base that I got passed over for because, because I was a Christian. And God, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, when, when does the crown come? When does the crown come? Have you ever had thoughts like that? That's these guys. For three years, Jesus, we've been part of the startup. We've struggled with you. We've slept out in the fields. We've we've had times where we've had to scrounge for food. You know, as you read through the gospels, you see in Mark two and and Luke six where they were walking through a field and they were plucking the heads of grain and they were rubbing it between their hands and just picking out little bits that they could eat. And the Pharisees are blasting them for it. Saying, What are you doing? It's the Sabbath. And they're going, We're hungry. And, and, and they're saying, God, we've, we've been with you. We've followed. And, and now people are turning out in droves. Jesus, whatever you want, just ask for it. And people will give it to you. And they're excited as they're going into Jerusalem. And as we talk about getting whatever he asked for, Jesus tells, us, tells them in, in Mark chapter 11, verses 2 through 7, Hey, I want you guys to go into the village opposite you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And they went and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. I mean, stop and look at that. Imagine, these guys come into the city, they're kind of, you know, looking around. Hey, there it is. That's the one Jesus said to untie. And one says, you do it. No, you do it. I'm I'm watching. You go get it. I mean, this is the first carjacking of a cult (laughs) in in history. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're stealing somebody's ride. And so, you know, they kind of go up. The guy's, "Mm, he unties it, and he starts to pull it. And somebody goes, hey, what are you doing? Oh, and, and you can see the, the guys are reaching for their swords and their clubs. They're about to take these thieves out. And and, and they go, oh, J- J- Jesus, Jesus needs it. And they say, oh, okay, great, take it. <laughs> and, and they're like, really? Yeah, yeah, whatever you want. They go around the corner, and they, they're high-fiving each other. Man, I told you we hitched our wagon to the right guy. I mean, as they walk down the streets, people see them and go, hey, there's... You guys are Jesus' disciples. <laughs> yeah, we're with him. Hey, you need anything? What do you want? What can we get you? You know, people like to be close to those who are close to those who are in power. And, and, and Jesus is about to come into power. And, and these guys are going, man, it is payday. Our stock, our stock options are, are golden. And, and they're excited. Now, there's a, another group on the side of the mountain that day. Remember, the, the religious leaders are there in the crowd. And they're also thinking about a crown. But the crown that they're thinking about is not the one that God gives. It's the one that the world offers. It's the one that they're trying desperately to hold on to. You remember in John chapter 11, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we, we saw how they said they wanted to kill him. Because in John eleven forty eight they said, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They weren't looking for the kingdom of God. They said, we already have our little slice of the world's kingdom. The Romans are in power and we have this relationship where we kind of keep things you know, rolling along and they leave us alone. They give us power and privileges. And Jesus is coming in he's messing everything up. And we're going to lose our little crown. We're going to lose our plastic paper crown that the world offers to us if we don't do something. These are fake or fake followers of God. They've gotten good at playing the God card when it, when it means they can get something. And, you know, there are plenty of people in the world around us like that, aren't there? You know, as a pastor, I see people in ministry who, who play the God card just to line their own pockets. How can, how can I manipulate people? How can I promise things to people so that, you know, sow a seed and reap a thousand, give me this and you'll get that? And, 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 and they're playing the God card. There, there are politicians who, who love to play the God card. You know, they, they drop Bible verses here and there, try to let everybody know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm on God's side. But then when it's time to push through a law or legislation and stand for God and his principles, they don't. There are businessmen and businesswomen who, who put a Christian symbol on their, their card or their advertisement. You know, the little fish this. And let everybody know, I'm a Christian. You should do business with me. But they don't bring Christian principles into the way they do business. And that's who these guys are. These religious leaders are playing the God card. And, and, and they're concerned about their little kingdom. And they, and they say, we can't let Jesus mess it up. So they come up with these plans as to how they think they're going to keep the plan of God from happening but nobody can do that John 12:12 12, 12 through 13 says on the next day the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him the feast that's mentioned here is passover Passover, you'll remember, is one of three mandatory feasts a year where every Jewish man was required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate and to offer the appropriate sacrifices of the temple. One of the sacrifices was the Passover lamb. And if you remember when we went through the Passover Seder at the end of Luke, we, ta- we, we read the Old Testament Uh, Passage that said, When you sacrifice a lamb, if your family is too small to consume the entirety of the lamb, you're to invite other families in because nothing is to be left. And so Josephus, the Jewish historian of the day, records for us that in 33 AD, there were 256,500 Passover lambs sacrificed. 256,500. And conservatively, eight to ten people would eat off each lamb. So that tells you there were around two to two and a half million Jews in and around Jerusalem at that time. So when we read here, Jesus comes in and there's a great multitude. It is overflowing. The streets are packed, the alleyways, the countryside. There's, there are people everywhere. And they're there to remember and celebrate the redemption of God. Passover is the time where the Jews look back to God's redemption when they were slaves in Egypt, and how God told them after the plagues, the final plague, he said, you are to take a lamb, you are to sacrifice it, paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your home. And as the angel of death comes in to to kill the firstborn in every family, when it sees the blood on the doorpost, it will pass over your home. The judgment will not strike your home. You will be saved. And as we talked again at the end of Luke in the Passover Seder, we saw that the picture, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. John one twenty nine says, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we talked about how when we paint the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of our heart, when we accept Him as our personal Savior, God will pass over us in judgment. Our sins have been covered, washed away by His blood. And so as the Jews are there in Israel, um, there in Jerusalem, celebrating the Passover, they're looking back at the redemption where God set them free from this foreign power. And they're in the moment saying, And God, we want you to set us free from Rome, this other foreign power. Save now. Release us. Help us, God. Get rid of this this power. They were hoping for this, this conquering king to come in. At the Passover, as the pilgrims poured into the city, they were in processions and they would be coming uh, up the side of the Mount of Olives and at the top you could see the city. You'll remember Jesus as he was up there, looked over at the city and it says he wept. He said, if only you had known the day of your visitation. And so people would come up and over, they would see the temple in all its glory, not the dome of the rock that you see there now, but the temple was there on the temple mount. And they would continue down this steep uh, side of the Mount of Olives, cross through the Kidron Valley, go back up into the city, and then they would go into the temple. And so you have these crowds, hundreds and thousands of people that would have been there on the mountainside. People are moving along. They're pushing together. They're singing songs. There's just, just this great excitement. And all of a sudden, the excitement goes off the charts. Because people have been talking about, well, do you think he's going to be here or not? And then it ripples through the crowd. He's here. Jesus is here. He's coming. People start stripping branches off the palm trees. They start laying their, their coats down, throwing them down in the road in front of him. They're waving them and they're, they're singing out this psalm of Psalm 118 that we began the sermon with. That, that psalm says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they add some words. They say, even the king of Israel. As you look at Psalm 118, that's not in there. They're saying, Lord, save now. And then they go, this is the Savior. This is the king. And they're right. Jesus is the king. But their expectation of who Jesus is and what he was about to do was different. They wanted a king to lead in battle, to overthrow Rome. But as you look at the passage and what what is being said here, it points back to a prophecy. John 12, 14 through 15 tells us, And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. If you look in the Old Testament, under the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As Jesus comes in riding on the donkey, friends, this is a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. Every single prophecy that pointed to the Messiah was filled in intricate detail by Jesus Christ. Every single one. Because he was the promised Messiah. And you may say, well, you know, Roger, this, this, this one would be easy to fake. I mean, I could have read Zachariah. I could have said, oh, yeah, I've got to ride in on a donkey. Somebody get me a donkey, I'm going to ride in on him, right? Do you remember the details? Let me ask you this. Have you ever ridden a horse? Anybody here ridden a horse? Raise your hands high. How many of you have ever been bucked off a horse? Keep your hands up. Let me, let me put more than one up, okay? Because I worked at a ranch camp in New Mexico for an entire summer, and I had this big, the horse was called Big Red. And there were times Big Red and I didn't quite get along, and uh, I found myself not on Big Red, you know? <laughs> I don't care how good of a rider you are. I mean, even the rodeo cowboys, who are really good, uh, still get bucked off. If you've ever been bucked off a horse, you know when it doesn't want you on it, there's probably a good chance you're not going to be on it anymore. And how many of you have ever gotten on a horse that has never ever been saddled or ridden? Anybody done that? Few of you. Probably got some broken bones and marks to show for it, right, Roddy? And so, as you think in terms of that, how is this donkey described? It's the foal of a colt that's never been ridden. It's a brand new unbroken donkey. Remember, the Mount of Olives is a very steep mountain that goes down into the Kidron Valley and up. How many of you want to get on the back of a donkey that's never been ridden before, going down a steep hill with people pushing in all around the thing, waving branches in front of its face, throwing coats down? What do you think is going to happen to the guy on the back of that donkey? Well, he's going to be face first in the rocks. But Jesus doesn't get bucked off the donkey. And you know why? Why? Because the creation knows the creator. And this donkey who had been created by God feels the creator on its back. And it is gentle. And it is privileged. And it carries the creator into the city. In fulfillment of Zechariah nine. 9 Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus doesn't come on a white horse. That's how the Romans came into cities in their triumphal entries. They're probably watching this procession and laughing. Are you kidding me? The guy's on the back of a donkey. What kind of king is this? Oh, hail the king, right? You can see the Roman soldiers sitting there. But the reason Jesus is on the back of a donkey is because in the scriptures a donkey is a sign of peace. And Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And as he comes into the city that day, he is there to bring peace. Peace to the broken relationship we have with God in heaven. Because your sins and mine and their sins in that day had separated them from God. There was this broken relationship. And only the King of kings and the Lord of lords, only the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, could come in and bring peace to the broken relationship through his blood that would be shed on the cross in Jerusalem. And that's why as he comes in, he is writing in symbolic thing, I am the Prince of Peace. I am coming to restore the relationship. You know, this Friday, we celebrate Good Friday. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus as he went to the cross in Jerusalem and he died. And this year, something that is, doesn't happen every year is that the Jewish feast of Passover is also on Good Friday. This Friday, as we're celebrating the death of our Lamb of God, they will be celebrating the Passover where they look to the lambs that were, that were slain and the blood that was shed in order for God to pass over in judgment. And it is a wonderful opportunity for us to share with Jewish friends and neighbors and co-workers and others about the gift Of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because when His blood gets applied to the doorpost of our heart, God passes over in judgment. And this is what we're looking at today, and it's what the disciples couldn't quite bring together, as John 12 16 says. These things His disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified remember, glorified means when He rose from the dead, when He was in His new resurrection body, as they saw Him for who He was. The resurrected messiah it says at that moment they said we got it then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him you see the disciples were looking for the crown and the crown would come but only after the cross only after the cross because Jesus had to sacrifice his life. He had to die and pay the penalty of death for our sins in order for us to be a part of the kingdom. And as they were hoping for the crown, God said, I will give you a crown. And he says to those of us who are believers today who are saying, God, I've lived for you. When does the crown come? The Bible tells us this in 1 Peter 5.4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The Bible says God is not unjust so as to forget our work. God will reward you. God will give you as a faithful believer who belongs to him and who lives for him a crown. And it says it will be an unfading crown. Not like the paper and plastic passing stuff that the world offers us that is junk and is going to burn up one day. God will give his people an unfading crown. Now the people in the crowd that day were looking for a conquering king. And Jesus fulfilled that as well. Their expectation was we want a king who will conquer. And Jesus conquered much more than they ever even imagined. Because as he went into Jerusalem and as he died on the cross, he conquered sin and death and our enemy Satan. He is the conquering king. And for those who were hoping for a king who would conquer the injustice in the world, that day is coming as well because Jesus Christ is coming back. If you read Revelation chapter 19, in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, it tells us this. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. Do you see that? Not a donkey this time, a white horse. The King of kings and the Lord of lords will come riding in in a triumphal war stallion. It says, I saw heaven opened in a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. John 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. This is Jesus Christ. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the conquering king. He conquered sin, death, and Satan the first time. And when he comes back, he will conquer, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ the Lord. This is what the people were hoping for. But remember, if Jesus had not gone to the cross first, then not a single one of us would be able to be with him in the kingdom. They wanted to be in the kingdom. The disciples were hoping to be in the inner circle. And Jesus said there is only one way that anyone comes into the kingdom, and that is through my death, my bloodshed on your behalf as I wash away your sins. And today God offers you the invitation to be a part of his kingdom, to accept his gift of new and eternal life. In John 1.12, he tells us, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Have you ever received God's gift of new and eternal life to you? Have you said to God, God, I know I'm a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I owe a penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And if you will accept his death in your place, if you believe he's who he said he was, the son of God who came and died for you and me, and that he rose from the dead, then you can be a part of his family. Romans ten nine says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so the question this morning is, which one of these people in the crowd are you today? The only one that you need to be is a true follower of Jesus who recognizes him for who he is. And you accept his death in your place. And if you do that, the Bible says you will be saved. You will be a part of the family of God. And so as we end today, I want to give you an opportunity to receive that gift. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise a hand. But what you do have to do is acknowledge in your heart and mind that you're a sinner. That just simply means you've made mistakes. You haven't been perfect. And as a sinner, as the Bible says, we owe a penalty, a penalty of death. And God says, if you will receive my death in your place, my payment, my blood shed for you, your sins will be washed away and you'll be a part of the family of God. And so if you're ready to receive his gift, I invite you just to bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. You can repeat this in the privacy of your head and heart. There's nothing magic about the prayer. It's just your way of saying to God, I'm accepting your gift today. And if you'd like to do that, then pray this with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I realize I owe a penalty. A penalty of death. That penalty that will separate me from you for all eternity. And I thank you, God, that you loved me so much that you left your throne in heaven. And you came to earth and you walked among us. And you lived a perfect life as the God-man. And that you willingly went to the cross, Jesus, to die. To die in my place, to shed your blood. To close the account. To pay the penalty in full that I owed for my sins. I believe, Jesus, that you proved you were who you said you were. The Son of God as you showed it by rising from the dead. Conquering sin, death, and Satan. And today, God, I accept you as my personal Savior. Jesus, I accept you to paint your blood on the doorpost of my heart so that one day judgment will pass over me. Thank you for making me a part of your family. Thank you for being my personal Savior. It's in your precious name that I pray, Jesus. Amen.